So uh, last week we began our discussion of gluttony and tried to get clear on exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about being gluttonous. So I want to begin with a quick review of the concepts that we discussed last week and to talk a little bit more about our appetites in general and how our culture tends to view our appetites and to finally turn to some correctives. So maybe last week you heard the discussion about gluttony and throughout the week as you were eating you were wondering to yourself, am I being gluttonous? Or maybe you were saying to yourself, I think I am gluttonous. We're going to try to turn to some practices and dispositions that the theological and ethical tradition has tried to give us to correct these attitudes that we might have. So if you're gluttonous, hopefully by the end of the talk today, you'll know how not to be gluttonous. And hopefully that will help us as we move forward. So just to recall briefly what we discussed last week, we wanted to, to say that gluttony in itself is not about any sort of particular action. So it's not having too much to eat at the buffet. It's not eating in a particular way or certain kinds of things in a particular way. Rather, it's a set of attitudes or dispositions. That is, desiring food too much. As, as I said, if, if we were all temperate, if we had this virtue of temperance and our attitudes and dispositions never inclined us to eat too much food, then we would not really have the problem of gluttony, which is the vice of excess with regard to food. We could also turn our attention to the vice of excess with regard to drink, which is what we would refer to as drunkenness, but that is a different topic for a different time. The opposite side of the vice of deficiency with regard to temperance is insensibility. So caring too little about food, so much that you don't eat or don't have the right sort of desires for the food that you do eat. And so the vice of gluttony is the excess of temperance. And notice that when we're talking about this disposition, we're not necessarily talking about the, the suppression of some kind of appetite. So we have gluttony, which is desiring food too much, and we're assuming that there is a good desire for food. There's a good sort of attitude and disposition to have. The natural desires to eat and to eat well are things that have been given to us by God. And there's goodness in allowing those desires to meet their particular end towards which they're aimed. And so when we talk about reordering our desires in terms of getting rid of the gluttonous uh, des desires that we have, we're not going to be talking about the suppression of appetite. So maybe you saw abstinence as the topic for today and thought we're primarily going to be talking about how to not have these desires that we might have for food. But we're going to talk not about suppression, but reordering, making sure that they're aimed at the right sorts of things. And we'll talk about some practices that will help us as we do that. Now, I want to briefly mention as well the, the ways that Sarah discussed last week that are gluttonous appetites can be manifest. What are the different ways? So we talked about five different types of uh, behaviors that gluttony is often manifest in. And then I'll open it up just because we ended early and didn't get to talk about questions that you might have had. So I'll br briefly review these, open it up for questions before moving on to why these kinds of practices are often referred to as gluttonous. So we talked about, first of all, sumptuous and fastidious eating. 
whereas sumptuous eating referred to the kinds of desires for particular foods, fastidious eating referred to the particular ways that food is prepared, not the food itself, but the means of preparation. Likewise, we talked about hasty eating and ravenous eating. Hasty eating being the kind of thing that happens when you eat too quickly and are all consumed by the immediate desire for food, and ravenous eating when you allow your eating to become so all-consuming that you don't notice anything else around you, that you're cut off to the greater good. And then finally, the type of gluttony that we often, or the type of behavior that we often think of with regard to gluttony, excessive eating, is only one of those five varieties. So uh, before I move on and begin discussing new material, I want to see if there were any questions or anything else that we'd like to discuss about these different varieties of gluttony or anything that you have as insights to help us understand them better before talking about why exactly these things are problematic. Why are they gluttonous? Yeah, Rich. I want to revisit something that I'm, I'm really working with. Okay, sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great point. Yes, Aristotle uh, is not. Well, Paul is not taking Aristotle's concepts and putting them to use in one-to-one -one correspondence. I think the most instructive way to think about this would be to look at not Aristotle, but a later Christianizing of Aristotle and Aquinas. And to think of how Aquinas talks about how we know this mean um, is quite important as a way to get us from Aristotle to a Christian way of appropriating this. Specifically, Aquinas would want to say the mean is known in the doctrine of creation. That is, that for which we are created. So the mean is going to be the thing that leads to our flourishing. It's not sort of just a middle ground, um, as if for any given excess or deficiency, we just find a middle ground and we can know it apart from looking to how God created us and apart from the person of Christ. So I think a Christian version of this, uh, taking the good concepts that we have in Aristotle and showing how they relate to the gospel, is to look at the doctrine of creation and know that for which we are made, namely fellowship with God and the flourishing of creation. And in that we get where we're aiming for in this mean. So the mean will get us there, all things considered. Does, does that help? Greg, you have something else to add? Yeah, I was just Right. Sometimes 
Yeah. No, it's, it's really, really bad. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea for me is that your, your dispositions and your emotional responses should always be appropriate to right. what has happened, whatever that is. So you ought to be as angry as the injustice or the wickedness of the situation calls for. That's right. To the extent you do that, you're good. Yeah, and so, so any. Right, and so, and he talks about other times where there's, you have two really bad options that you ought to aim closer, farther away from the worst one, closer to the mean in a case of how do you pick between two really bad, bad things. Um, you know, it's not like we have thought anything about that recently. <laughs> um, yeah, so does that, does that help, Rich? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so I, th I think that Aristotle on his own, um, Aquinas helps us with the doctrine of creation to get figuring this out a bit more. And that was where I was differing from, from Bob a bit in thinking of our, uh, rather than mere, say, for humility and emptying, that we're looking for a particular, a, a purpose that we've been created for, and that will help us figure that out better. Yeah, so I, th I think he might just be showing us that what is commonly taken to be this, just like be sort of level, is not what we're called as Christians to do. That the actual thing we're aiming for, the mean that we've been created for, is not merely like give a little bit, but it's excessive, or it seems excessive to the, the given culture. So there's still, like, um, we might say, uh, suppose that you pledged on your pledge card today like way more money than you actually have to give. Uh, and you end up giving all of that and a, a rightly ordered desire to help other people out. But it may in the end not be the right amount, it may have been too much for you to give, you didn't have all of that to give. And it may result for bad things for you and, and your family and your grandkids who are gonna need that. <laughs> Yeah, so, so I think Christ, Christ helps us re, it refocuses us on what the mean is. Yeah. I think I need to look at the, the traitor of rebuttal here. <laughs> 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 yeah. Any other questions before, before I move on and talk about why these things are, are problematic? So why is it bad that you eat excessively, that you eat ravenously, that you eat sumptuously, that you eat fastidiously. What's wrong with these kinds of things? And the reason, at least the reason according to what Aquinas tells us, is that there are three different things that these particular types of practices with respect to eating gluttonous, uh, eating in terms of gluttony too much, typically do. And the first of these things is what he calls disablement. So if, if remember, we talked about the mean being the thing that we're oriented towards, the rational thing for a person to do in any given situation. The first thing Aquinas says that these types of behaviors do is that they disable us. 
So here's the, the best way to think of this one. So think of the, um, the turkey coma, right? We might think of this as, as rather innocuous. Um, you eat a lot of turkey, you may have ate a lot of turkey, and the typical thing is to go take a nap after you ate a lot of turkey because you had too much and now you're tired because of all the tryptophan and, and calories that you ate. Now, we might not think of that as being too problematic, but one way that it can be problematic, this disablement of your rational faculties to make wise decisions, might be, for instance, that it took you away from considering the time you could have spent with family. There might have been a good thing that this excessive practice took you away from. It disabled your senses from being able to experience the greater good of fellowship with those around you. And so Aquinas talks in terms of these practices can be disabling to us. We might think of this more readily in terms of drunkenness, for example. The reason he thinks this is so bad is because it disables our faculties to make rational decisions. And so one of the reasons that these gluttonous behaviors are problematic is because they disable us from doing what we ought to be able to do. So that's one. A second way that these practices can be harmful to us, the reason that they're bad, is that they disorient us, he says. That is, they turn our attention away from the greater good that we might be experiencing. So think of here, um, our, our quick desire to have easy, fast meals. We might think of uh, a, a need to have cheap food, a need to have our appetites um, Sarah and I don't have kids yet, but I imagine once we do that the time that I spend cooking will dr drastically be uh, cut off and I won't have the time. And so I might look for a quick solution to a meal. That's a, perhaps a good thing to feed my family with uh, things that are within the means that I have. And yet that, that good thing, if taken to excess, might disorient me from the greater goods that food can provide. Think about the, the practices that hurt our environment, the practices that hurt workers, the practices that abuse animals in our factory farming system. There may be all these kinds of negative things that my participation in, say, hasty eating or fastidious eating might perpetuate. And these kinds of things can disorient me from the greater good of wanting the flourishing of all things the flourishing of not only my good, but the good of all the others that my decisions impact. And so our gluttonous actions are not merely problematic because they can uh, uh, disable our senses, but because they can disorient us from the greater good that we might be able to be experiencing. Does that make sense? So we have disablement as a way of our, our senses, our, our rational capacities being limited in some way by these gluttonous behaviors. We can be disoriented from the greater good. And the third thing he says that these gluttonous behaviors can do is that they can distract us. And um, I always give an example of this when uh, one of the first times that Sarah and I had my parents into town after we were married and I had just begun um, trying all these new recipes and getting into cooking. Um, they came and I wanted to make them some re a really nice meal. And that was perhaps a, a good thing. I wanted to share abundance with them and to cook things for them. But what ended up happening is I was a bit overambitious. And so I was going to cook breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
And what ended up happening is that I was kind of cooking all day. And I was in our kitchen with my head down, being distracted from what was a greater good, namely having time spent with my family. And so in that way, my perhaps fastidious desire to cook foods in a specific way or my desire to have particular kinds of foods distracted me from a good that I might have experienced had I not had those kinds of dispositions. And so we might think of um, the classic example that I think of in scripture in this respect is Mary and Martha. Uh, remember when, uh, I think it's, is it Martha who's running around the house preparing things and um, she's kind of like mad because Mary's sitting with Jesus and, and not as concerned about all the other things as she ought to be. And Jesus is like, well, you'll, like, I'm here, focus on me. This is where your attention should be. So the kinds of gluttonous behaviors that we can manifest our gluttony in will be distracting in some ways at times. Matt? The further endorsement of Jesus of that religious thing we think of is he's not like more than two, Matthew 6, 25. Yeah, so what, what, what do you think that contributes to, to this? The anxiety So we have these good desires for food. Gluttony is taking them to excess, and they deviate in some way from where they ought to be in terms of these three kinds of things. They, these practices disable our ability to have the right kinds of desires. They disorient our desires, and they distract us. Do you have any questions or, or further comments about these kinds of things? We might be able to think of more of these. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I'm going to, to talk shortly about the way that the, the sort of common view of what gluttony is, is that we have excessive appetites and the appetites need to be tamed. Um, and I'm saying that, I'm going to say that's only half of the picture. Uh, and there's some cultural reasons, I think, why that particular view has been perpetuated um, and actually can, can cause, in my view, some, some problems to the way that we view our embodied existence as people who are who have appetites and desires that are good things in themselves oriented in a specific way. So I'll talk about that as one side of the solution to gluttony, self-control, but there are some other things as well. That's right, and so um, to, to get a, a little bit ahead, one of the ways, there's, there's three different ways to correct gluttony, at least according to some of these people who have reflected on this, on gluttony in particular. One of the ways is hospitality, and I think this is precisely the way that we turn desires that would end on ourselves into sharing. 
Right. So there's a good desire that was taken too far. I might have uh, fallen to the other, the insensible extreme, and not really cared at all what I was serving my guests. And that's equally problematic, according to the ethical tradition. It's not gluttonous, but it's a vice. And it's just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. One of those greater goods to consider when we're thinking about what is rational for the way for us to flourish as humans is to consider not only loving God, but loving other people. And so that's one of the factors of how can we love others in the ways that we eat as well. Other questions before we move on to um, a few other things with respect to appetites and desires? Okay, so I'm, I've tried to say that our our the desire that we have as humans for food is a good thing. But unfortunately, in our culture, our desires for food have been skewed in some ways. Skewed, I think, by a lot of different factors, one of which that I would like to talk about is a sort of gender narrative factor. And to get at this, I would just like to ask, what are foods that we typically associate with males? What are men foods? <laughs> Steak, potatoes, <laughs> bacon, okay. Oh, big burgers. Beer, hot sauce, okay. What was that? Yeah, high calories. Okay. Now, so we have we have men food, manwich, hot hot pockets. <laughs> uh, Greg and I love Taco Bell. That's kind of a, a man food. Um, okay, so what is a what are what are female foods? <laughs> Salad. Okay. What else? Quiche. Yeah. So isn't it isn't it fascinating how we all we all know these things? These are things told to us by our culture that there are certain foods that are men foods, and there are certain foods that are female foods. Now, what I'd like you to ask, what do those male foods tell us about how appetites are viewed for men? What is the appetite for men, given the kinds of food? Big, carnivorous. Big, <laughs> carnivorous. right? It's, it seems to be something to be conquered, right? It, like, how much can I fit it in the buffet line in my mouth? How, that is, I have, there are certain desires that are meant to be satisfied, right? Now, what about female foods? What, are the, the, what is the appetite for women based on the kinds of foods that we've said women eat? In what way? Tedious chocolate, that's it. 
Just enough to be satiated. Okay. <laughs> so what's the uh, what's the the famous saying? Um, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. Is, is that, that's, the, that's the kind of narrative that we've been given. Yeah. So if the, if the male appetite is something to be conquered, the female appetite is something perhaps to be suppressed. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's something that you have, but like you shouldn't let it come to bear a lot. Like too much is a problem there. Now, so there's this fantastic essay by a philosopher at Calvin College named Christina Van Dyke where she talks about gender narratives and, and food and what this received way of viewing food has done. And unfortunately, she says, this view that we've received culturally has skewed our view of what our appetites are actually for. Namely, according to sort of the female narrative, appetite isn't inherently good, it's something to be suppressed. According to the male narrative, we have this appetite that is something that we ought to fulfill, something that we should conquer and beat into submission in some way. And she suggests that the Christian tradition views appetite as an inherently good thing, neither as something to be conquered or as something to be suppressed. That is something good and God-given when rightly ordered to the kinds of things that we're created to be. So neither this masculine narrative nor this feminine narrative, these cultural myths that have been perpetuated will actually work for our purposes of defining the appetite in a way that is inherently Christian, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah, Hal? Uh, you may be getting to this, but um, where, where does the concept of fasting fit into this? That's a perfect segue in, into the next point, because we're going to talk about how then we correct gluttony and how fasting can play a role in reforming and reshaping what our appetites actually are. So I'll get there shortly. Yeah. It's occurring to me that if all we add to our fear or our food is promised to be sinfully good, it's only ever going to be good. That's interesting. Yeah. So why would that be? why the sense of taste is so closely related to sex. Mm -hmm. And he says it's because um, in the same way that sex is something necessary to survive, 
through procreation, so is eating necessary to survive. And whereas sex is concerned with the sense of touch, food is concerned with the sense of taste, which he says is the most closely related to touch. And so food is the most closely related thing to sex. So gluttony and lust are right two sides of the same coin in some ways. Yeah, and here, um, to think of that appetite and desire, I just want to commend, um, it just so happens that the sort of leading figure on uh, who's doing the best thinking right now on desire is an Anglican theologian, and also a female. Sarah Coakley has uh, recently done some fantastic work in trying to reframe this concept of desire as something that is inherently a good thing. And she just gave a lecture that talks about Genesis 3 at the recent... AAR meeting, um, she talks about sin and desire in Genesis 3 as relating to our, our appetites and, uh, and things more broadly. So that was really helpful. Yeah. I think it's interesting also that um, we're talking about uh, eating and, and you know, talking about uh, Eve eating the apple. And, but I, it just dawned on me that when um, Jesus was um, raised from the dead, that on the road to Emmaus, he breaks bread. Sure, and that affirms that in the resurrection, our embodied existence is a good thing. It's not something that we're trying to get rid of our bodies so that we can go live in heaven and have this uninhibited spiritual desire for God, but rather that we can live embodied lives, resurrected lives, with our desires corrected. So I want, I want to talk a little bit more now about how then we correct this gluttonous appetite that we might have. The first way, or, or to frame this differently, how can we be temperate? And there are a few different ways that we might think about this. The first way that Aquinas in particular talks about is by thinking of critical reflection on food. He says, if we can have conversations like this about what it means to eat virtuously, that in itself will help us to know what we ought to do in any given situation. That is, if we don't know what the good is, we won't be able to aim ourselves at it. Now, just knowing what the good is isn't sufficient for aiming yourself at it. We need some help in taming our wills as well, which we'll get to that. But this is at least one component. So this exercise that we're doing now is not something that is only useful for something else, but it actually itself is a corrective to gluttonous behaviors. And so this is just an affirmation of talking and critically thinking about things that, that we do in catechesis is actually a formative practice to shape our desires. So critical reflection on food, that's the first way. The second way is through bodily discipline. And this is where we get to fasting and feasting, or the, what Matt had on, on the sheet for today, abstinence. Now, because of the kinds of narratives that I discussed earlier with respect to gender, we do have a special kind of emphasis in the ascetical tradition, that is on the, the kind of tradition of monks who were going to practice fasting, on fasting alone. And if you think about this, it kind of makes sense. If we have a bunch of men in a monastery 
all of whose desires are probably raging and not satisfied, we might have some specific kinds of practices aimed at correcting those desires that can't be conquered, namely the attitude of fasting. And fasting is really important and really great, and I'm going to talk about why that is. But if we're going to think of fasting, we ought also to think of feasting as important. If fasting corrects the desire to have too much, feasting corrects the desire to have too little. So I think that if we don't consider the liturgical tradition of having both fasting and feasting as a part of the disciplines that we practice, we're going to have a skewed view of the appetites and what they're for, ultimately. So I'm going to talk a little bit about fasting and, and what its purposes are and how we ought to think of it. Um, if we view fasting not primarily in this ascetical tradition as merely suppressing appetites so that our spiritual desires might be freed from our bodily sensations and focusing more on God, we might want to think of fasting as reorienting our bodily desires. That is, fasting as reclaiming and reordering the desires that we have. And this is a, a, both a respect and a recognition of our bodied lives. The fact that we're not disembodied souls, but people who live in bodies. And so what does fasting do? While fasting, yes, is a particular time of setting aside some sort of food, the ultimate thing that fasting is is not merely for the setting aside of the food itself. Rather, the thing that fasting is aimed at is a recognition of our need and dependence on something else. So Advent is a season of fasting, which is so hard to balance in the midst of a uh, it's viewed as sort of the time of feasting culturally, but yet liturgically it's a, it's a time of fast before Christmas. So if we think of all the Advent readings, this time of fasting is a time where we recognize the need we have for redemption. Or to, to preview Andrew's sermon for those of you who weren't here for it at the nine o'clock service, our need for repentance. The need that we have to have our sins taken away the need for judgment to come and get rid of them. And so fasting is a particular setting aside of something so that we might be able to recognize our need and our dependence on, on God, which is what it's supposed to aim us towards. So fasting is to correct our over-desire for the kinds of things that are inherently good but yet can be desired too much and to set our reliance upon something else. So Aquinas gives some kinds of ways that we can think of what fasting is and is not. So he thinks fasting is not something that you do for your health. So if, if your ultimate goal is to say, have a cleanse or to lose some weight, what you're doing, he says, is not fasting. That's medicine, he says. And the two are different. Fasting is, is to get your desires to be on God. And so fasting is valuable because it frees you from the appetites you have that may be distracting you, disabling you, or disorienting you from the greater good from God himself. So fasting helps correct our attitudes in some specific ways towards those things which are good. Questions so far?
Sure. I think the, the feasting element is important as well. Like, if we only focus on the way to correct gluttony as self-discipline and fasting, um, we will think that it's something that will help us be better and not view food as inherently a good thing. Whereas if we think of both fasting and feasting as correctives to the sorts of bad appetites that we have, um, we'll recognize that there is a particular way to view food in a way that is um, it's feasting as well that's good, that will correct, even in some ways correct the desires to have too much because it's feasting in an appropriate sort of way. So if, if uh, fasting is recognizing our need and dependence on particular things by giving things up, feasting is our expression of gratitude and thankfulness for the things that we have and the goodness that they have. One practical way, um, so my wife and I, we try to build in, aside from the liturgical seasons of feasting and fasting, a more a, a regular pattern of mild fasting uh, in terms of eating very, very healthily during the week. So this is a practice, it's not a formal fast, but it's an informal way of structuring our meals so that we'll eat simply, we'll eat um, mostly vegetarian, fairly healthily foods during the week, and then the weekend we'll try to feast a bit more and have times where we're able to enjoy food in better ways. So it's, it's a, it's a built-in way that we experience on a liturgical level as well that can shape desires through practices over time. Go ahead, yeah, one more question then I'm gonna. helpful yeah so if we have in terms of ways to correct gluttony the first way of critical reflection on food and eating we also have this cycle of fasting and feasting which again is not an attempt merely to suppress our appetites but a, a chance to reclaim and reorder our desires and appetites and a chance to respect and recognize our, our bodied existences people whose bodies are good and then finally the third corrective so if you're still gluttonous, Aquinas says, you have this option for hospitality. And I could focus on hospitality. Um, there's a, a book by Christine Pohl 
he talks about uh, hospitality in the Christian tradition. And hospitality is a, a, a much more broad than entertaining, having people in your home. But since we're talking about food, I want to talk specifically about hospitality in terms of inviting others into your home to, to share what you have with them uh, in some special ways. There, there's this fantastic book that my father-in-law pointed me to um, by a Jewish guy named Leon Cass, and it's called The Hungry Soul. And he has some fantastic reflection on why and, uh, ha expressing hospitality is so important. And in his view, it, it expresses the virtue of liberality. That is, of being a completely free human who willingly shares what you have with other people. And so if we think of gluttony as being problematic because it does take those desires and turn them in on themselves. Um, Augustine talks about our sinful conditions as in curvatus and say, turned in upon ourselves. We can think of like Gollum. It's kind of the best example of this. As bent over, uh, not expressing any gratefulness outward, but focused on himself. Um, we might think of hospitality as standing up and turning outward. It's taking desires that when focused on us can be problematic and sharing them with others. So think about um, the cooking a, a huge meal for yourself and opening a super expensive bottle of wine and eating alone. There might be some problematic desires that are associated with that, at least potentially. But those same kinds of things that can be gluttonous behaviors by yourself, when shared with others, can become a time of flourishing, a time of fellowship, a time of communal eating. And so hospitality is a chance to take the desires that you have that may be disordered when they end with you and to express those desires in terms of sharing with others and giving. Liberal sharing with those who might need. Yeah. Absorb in this food and be gluttonous, right? Right. So I'm, so I'm trying to sort of think through that. Yeah, I, I'm sure that um, I don't. I'm sure it can fit into like all the all the virtues that we can think of, like uh, are going to correct these vices in different ways. So there's going to be some overlap there. So I certainly think that thankfulness will will help correct these kinds of dispositions, even if um, it's not a formal corrective. In some different way, or in, in some specific way. Yeah. Uh, you remind me of a Hebrew movie called Ushkidim, which uh, uh, it circulated. The, the story is about the celebration of Sukkot, and Ushkidim is the word for visitors. It's very good to have to express hospitality during the feast day mm -hmm. for these Orthodox Jews, and they invite. Situation. We might think of a corresponding example to that as Babette's Feast. Yeah. 
Yeah. Of course, the, the classic example of you have people who view food as inherently, um, inherently kind of like lust, right? Like it, it's it's a bad expression if we if we eat these, you know, these luscious French foods according to this Lutheran Pietist community, and yet we have a French woman who comes in and shows the community what it looks like to, to feast. And that feast is a corrective for the kinds of attitudes and dispositions of hostility, enmity, and strife that existed in the community. We're out of time. Um, thanks for your, your good questions and your help in talking about this topic. We'll continue next week. Who's, who's on next? Next week we're going to a seasonal level where we talk about that. Okay, great. Perfect. Thank you.